You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Discouragement and depression can suck the life, can suck the hope right out of our souls. The 18th century English poet William Cooper knew that. William Cooper had a hard life. His mother died when he was only six years old. Some of you kids in the room, you wonder how that could be. As a six-year-old losing your mother, William Cooper knew that pain of saying goodbye to his mother when he was about the age of a first grader. And he was left to be raised by his father, with whom he apparently had a rather unhealthy relationship. In adult life, Cooper struggled with severe depression, and from the records we know, was even suicidal at times. There were times when he was sent to an insane asylum. And while resident at St. Albain Insane Asylum in 1764, he happened upon a Bible lying on a bench in the garden of the asylum. And he began to read that copy of the Bible that he found on the bench. And as he read the Gospel of John, chapter 11, he read words like this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And God did his miracle of grace in the life of that depressed, discouraged man. And William Cooper became a believer in Jesus Christ. And even though the rest of his life was still marked by many difficulties, even though he still struggled with believing that God could love him with saving grace, he never lost hold of the fact that God is both sovereign and loving. He had a pastor of some renown. Maybe some of you recognize the name John Newton. John Newton was the man that wrote probably the most famous hymn in the English language, Amazing Grace. That was William Cooper's pastor. And William Cooper noticed this man in this church struggling with discouragement and depression and began to counsel him and mentor him. And when he realized the gifts that God had given this discouraged man, William Cooper, he encouraged Cooper to begin writing poems, encouraged him, write these down. And some of William Cooper's poems have become hymns that we sing to this day. One of them that you might have heard, maybe not, it's not his most well-known hymn, goes like this. We have the words on the screen that you can follow. Cooper wrote, you fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence. He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Please join me in the book of Ruth, chapter 3. The book of Ruth, chapter 3. The book of Ruth is about a widow named Naomi who clearly struggled with bitterness and possibly depression. She even asked people to begin calling her by the name Bitter. She felt as if she were living under these threatening clouds, under God's frowning face. The 
Now one day her also widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth, brought her some unexpected news that led her to believe that maybe those clouds hanging over her head might actually be full of the blessing of rain. She began to believe that behind God's frowning providence, he might actually be smiling at her. Pastor Mark, thank you so much for leading us through Ruth chapter 2 last week. And as you preach through chapter 2 of the book of Ruth, what caught my eye, especially me personally, was verses 19 and 20. And if you want to turn a page or so back to chapter 2, look, look in your Bibles at verses 19 and 20. When her mother-in-law, that would be Naomi, said to her, that would be Ruth, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you, because Ruth had just come home with an extra large bundle of grain. <laughs> so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And you see this woman who had been so bitter and so depressed, and suddenly, don't you see it? Do you see a ray of God's sunshine enlightening this woman's darkened soul? That this woman who had come back from Moab depressed, telling people, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter, call me Mara. Now here's news that begin to stir hope in her parched soul. Discouragement and depression can suck hope right out of our hearts. Depressed people feel stuck. There's no point of even trying. There's no point of even trying to move forward. It won't make any difference anyway. Some of us here today have experienced periods of hopelessness, haven't we? Maybe some of you are there right now, right now, when you are so down, you wonder, how could God care about me? Does God love me? What's the point of even trying? But what we see in Ruth 3 is a woman whose heart begins to change. It's a pivotal chapter in the story of Ruth. Hope begins to germinate in, in Naomi's soul. And with that germination of hope comes a bold, and I will say a risky, plan. <laughs> Naomi, the mother-in-law, comes up with a bold and risky plan for her daughter-in-law, Ruth. <laughs> Why don't we read about that? We're in chapter 3 now. Let me just read the first five verses to begin. Ruth 3, the first five verses. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? And by the way, rest in this context probably refers to marriage, that uh, she wants her daughter to have the safety of a marriage and the blessing of children. Should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were when you, when you were gleaning? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. 
Now, this sounds like a strange story to us in 21st century America. Maybe, maybe we could appreciate this story a little bit more if we had some background. Let, let me explain it as concisely as I can. The, the promised land, the promised land, Israel, actually the land belonged to God. The land belonged to God. But the people of Israel were allowed to hold the land, as it were, in trust. Years before, when Joshua led the children of Israel to claim the promised land, God led the people to have the land distributed by tribe and clan and family. And so each tribe, clan, and family were designated a portion of the promised land. And according to the plan of God, that land was to stay within that tribe, to stay within that family in perpetuity. So the land wasn't supposed to get transferred from this tribe to that tribe, or it wasn't supposed to get transferred from that tribe to maybe some Gentile. If the land did get sold, there were times when an Israelite would find himself in dire straits. I'm broke. What am I going to do? He might sell himself into a form of bondage, into like a bond servant, or he might even, quote, sell the land. But the land eventually had to come back to that family. It had to come back to that family. So if the Israelite who in dire straits sold the land that God had entrusted to him, if his financial situation changed, he not only could, but he should buy that land back. But what if his economic situation never does turn around? What if his economic situation continues to be dire? Well, maybe, maybe he has some relative. Maybe he has some relative of standing, someone with assets, someone of stature in the tribe. And that man could, on behalf of his relative who's in dire straits, come alongside and say, I'll redeem the land for you. I'll get the land back for you. That relative, that relative who is gracious, a man of means, would be called a kinsman redeemer. He was redeeming the land for his kin, for his relative. He was a kinsman redeemer. Now, this gets even more interesting. Because in a similar way, not only was the land to stay in the family, but so was the family line supposed to stay in perpetuity. So the land was to stay in the family, but so was the family name. The family name was to go on in perpetuity as well. So what if, what if a man died leaving a childless widow? What if a man died and his wife, his widow, and he had never had children? Well, now we're still in that situation. How is the family line going to continue? How is the family name going to continue? Well, strange as it sounds to our ears, <laughs> here's what God said in Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25. Not only was the land to be redeemed, but the line was to be redeemed. The family name was to be redeemed. So if a man died, leaving a childless widow, that man, this deceased man's brother, was supposed to marry the widow. And if they had a child together, then that child that they had together would actually be attributed to his deceased brother's name. So that his deceased brother would have some descendants. Now, if the man didn't have a brother, it could be an uncle or a cousin might serve that role. <coughs> so this man who 
married the widow, this relative that married the widow, he would be a redeemer as well. With that backdrop, Ruth chapter 3 makes more sense. That's not our culture, but it was their culture. It was what God designed for that culture. That the land was to be redeemed and the name, the line was to be redeemed. By the way, I'm going to repeat this later, but as John MacArthur said something about this passage. He said, every kinsman redeemer was, in effect, a living illustration of the position and work of Christ with respect to our, his people. He is our kinsman redeemer. He buys us back from our bondage to sin. He redeems our lives from death ultimately returning everything to us that we lost because of our sin. <coughs> Keep that in mind. Maybe I inherited your cough, brother. <laughs> Keep that in mind as we read Ruth chapter 3. Now back to Ruth chapter 3. So having that backdrop of what's going on in this culture, uh, Naomi recognized that Boaz was a relative of her deceased husband, Elimelech. That makes him a possible kinsman redeemer. So, having heard the story from her daughter-in-law that God providentially directed the daughter-in-law, Ruth, to glean grain in the field of this Boaz, his kinsman redeemer, hope stirs in the heart of Naomi, and she comes up with this plan. She comes up with this plan that is not only bold, but I'm going to say, in my opinion, that it was very risky. Ruth tells her daughter-in-law, get yourself cleaned up. Make yourself smell good. Get your best clothes on. And quietly go down to the threshing floor in the evening. And when you see everything kind of calming down, you know, the festivities, the eating, the drinking are kind of winding down and people are getting sleepy, look to see where Boaz is lying down. When everyone seems to be asleep, Ruth, you subtly, you quietly go over to where Boaz is sleeping and lie down, probably perpendicular to his feet, and uncover the edge of his robe, cloak, and cover yourself with the edges of his cloak. By the way, sometimes the edges of the cloak were called the wings of the cloak. You're going to see that word wings in this passage. Cover yourself up with the edges of his cloak, the edges, the wings of his, his robe. Now, now, let me just say why I think this was so risky. Naomi was either showing that she was full of faith or she was being foolish. <laughs> Could, can you see a couple of bad possibilities here? I mean, one of them, one of them might have been this. Boaz might have woken up in the middle of the night and seen this woman lying at his feet and recognized this is a Gentile woman. This is a Moabite woman. I didn't invite her. What's she doing here? He could have woken up in the middle of the night and seen this Moabite woman at his feet saying, Woman, what are you doing? Are you trying to ruin my reputation? I mean, you're a Gentile. Get out of here. And he could have just dismissed Ruth rudely. Like, who do you think you are? I have a reputation to uphold in this community, and, and you're putting it at risk, Moabite. And just dismissed her. Or the other possibility is that Boaz could have succumbed to the reality of a young woman coming to him in the middle of the night and taking advantage of her. There are some serious questions going on here about how wise Naomi's plan was. It's possible that she trusted the integrity of Boaz 
and was confident in her now converted daughter-in-law, Ruth, that she thought this was going to have a happy ending. The suspense is building, isn't it? So what's Ruth going to do? What's she going to do with her mother-in-law's risky plan? Let's find out. Let's read verses 6 through 9. So she, that would be Ruth. So Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Boaz had had a big day. I mean, he had, he had been farming all day, you know. Some of you have farm backgrounds. Farm work is good, hard labor. And he, had, with his men, had been harvesting the grain, the barley. And what they did was they would gather, they would cut off the stalks, and then they would take all of that and put it on this flat rock. Um, and they would thresh it. Uh, they would sometimes get some animals, maybe dragging a beam or something behind them, and they would run it over and over and over until the, the heads of the grain, the kernels of grain, would be knocked off of the stalks. And then in the evening, when the breeze was blowing just right, they, they would take some kind of pitchforks or something, and, and they would toss it up into the breeze. And as they tossed it up into the breeze, the breeze would carry away the light stuff, the chaff, and the heavy grain would just fall down. And so when they had done that separating of the chaff from the grain, then they would scoop up the grain and put it in a heap, put it in a pile. So Boaz had had a big day. He had done all this work with his men, and maybe because he didn't want to waste time, or maybe because he wanted to protect his grain, he decided, I'm just going to stay here tonight. And he just found a place to lie down there beside the heap of grain. <clears throat> and in the middle of the night, I'm guessing, his feet got cold. <laughs> No wonder Ruth had uncovered them. <laughs> and uh, we could all relate to this. You know, he wakes up in the middle of the night. Maybe he's uncomfortable. Maybe his feet are cold. And so he goes to turn over and he reaches down to get his cloak to cover his feet. And there's someone lying down there. And it's a woman. Now it's dark enough he can't tell who it is. And so he asks, who is this? Naomi was told, told Ruth, just do what I'm telling you, and he'll tell you what to do. But interestingly, Ruth deviates from the script that her mother-in-law had given her. Did you notice that? Basically, Naomi said, don't, don't say anything. He'll tell you what to do. But when uh, Boaz says, who are you, Ruth ad-libs. She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Here's where she says, spread your wings over your servant for your redeemer. She's proposing to Boaz. She's proposing to Boaz. She's saying, I need a redeemer, and you're qualified. As I spread the edges of your cloak over me, I'm symbolizing that I want your husbandly protection. I want you to cover me. I want your protection as my husband. Would you be my husband? Would you be my kinsman redeemer? Would you spread your wings of protection over me, Boaz? How is Boaz going to respond to this most unusual marriage proposal? 
Let's read verses 10 through 15. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If uh, he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. She held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And she went into the city. If you've been following this story of the book of Ruth, I think we would all recognize that Boaz had some sort of affection or at least admiration for this young woman. If you remember in chapter 2, he had some sort of attraction to Ruth. His key, the owner of the field, went out to see his people working the fields. He saw this young woman and he said, who is that? Who is that? That's Naomi's daughter-in-law, the Moabite, who had come back with her. He never approached her. And we might wonder why, humanly, we wonder, well, why didn't Boaz ever go to her and say, hey, would you like to go out for coffee or something, you know? <laughs> but he never did. You know, maybe, maybe he just felt like he was too old. Maybe he felt like she's not going to want the likes of me. But he had previously shown real care for this young immigrant widow through deeds of kindness. He provided protection for her from the hormone-charged young men that worked the fields. He told her, he said, I, I told my guys to let you alone. Don't worry. I, I told my guys, leave you alone. They're not going to touch you, which would have been a comfort to a young woman so vulnerable in that situation. He had shown care for this young woman by providing protection. And then he provided food for her. He invited her, eat with the group here, eat with my employees and me. Gave her grain to eat, roasted grain. Gave her water to drink. He told his folks that were gathering the stalks, drop some on purpose. Be deliberately careless. Don't gather all the grain. I'd, I'd like her to have a generous amount to take home. And he showed such care for her, not only in his actions, but in his words. I'm going to flip back to chapter 2 again. Look at verses 11 and 12. Look at how this man spoke to this young immigrant from Moab. Verse 11 of chapter 2, but Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have taken refuge. He acknowledges the fact that this immigrant woman, this woman from Moab, was now a believer in the true God. He recognized that. He said, you've come under the wings of God himself. You belong to him, even though you're a foreigner. You belong to him. And your reputation, Ruth, Everybody in town knows your reputation. He calls her a worthy woman. By the way, for those of you that enjoy Proverbs 31, it's the same word as we find there of a worthy wife. 
He says, uh, Ruth, your reputation's pristine. How you've cared for your mother-in-law. Ruth, I just want to commend you for how you've treated your, your mother-in-law and her despair. He spoke these wonderful wings to her. And then he said some things to Ruth that must have been music in her ears. <coughs> Back in chapter 3, verse 10. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. By first act of kindness, he's referring, no doubt, to how Ruth treated her, her mother-in-law, Naomi. But now he says, you've treated me with kindness by proposing marriage to me. You've treated me with kindness. The kindness you're showing me, Ruth, is, is even greater than the kindness you showed your mother-in-law, Naomi. And in, in a sense, he's implying, Ruth, you, you could have gone after passion. You could have gone after a young man. Could have gone after looks. Could have gone after money. But you approached me. You approached me, an older man, and asked me to be your husband. And I think if we stand in the sandals of someone in that culture, the words have even deeper impact. It's as if Boaz could have said, Ruth, you, you could have married for passion. But you weren't driven by your own feelings. You, you thought of your family. You thought of the God of Israel. And you wanted to honor him. And you wanted to honor the family of your deceased husband by seeking not just any man, but seeking a kinsman redeemer so that the family name of your deceased husband would continue on. You, you're thoughtless when it comes to yourself and you're thoughtful when it comes to God and your family. And then Boaz makes a wonderful promise to Ruth. He said, I will be your kinsman redeemer, but, but, there is someone who's a closer relative to your deceased father-in-law than I. And if he's willing, if this other relative is willing to be your kinsman redeemer, I'm going to follow God's ways and I'm going to back off. But you kind of get the feeling Boaz would really like to marry this woman, but don't you? <laughs> like it would be, this would be great if I could be your husband, you could be my wife. But according to the way things worked, according to God's law, if there's this closer man, if he's willing to redeem you, then I'll step out of the way. But if he's not willing, I'll be your husband. Isn't that good news to Ruth? It would be dangerous for Ruth to head back out onto the streets this time of night. So he says, just stay here for now. Um, I don't want you in danger out there. Um, but as soon as it starts getting light, why don't you head back into town? Now, we don't want people gossiping. <laughs> and so before he sends her off, what does he do? He says, hold out your, your cloak here. And we don't know what size the measure is, he says, but I'm going to give you six measures of barley. Um, we do know what some of the measurements in Israel were, and depending on which one this was, it was quite possibly about all that this woman could carry. Some people have estimated it could have weighed 75 or 80 pounds. This wasn't a little lunch bag full of barley. Uh, this, this would have been something he put it on her, it says. So maybe you picture it on her head or on her shoulder. But here's this young woman carrying maybe 70 or 80 pounds of grain back home to her mother-in-law. <laughs> There's an epilogue to this story. Look at verses 16, 17, and 18. 
And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. By the way, let me just pause. Do you remember how Naomi described herself time and again? I'm empty. I'm empty. And God says, Naomi, you're not going to be empty anymore. I'm going to fill you. I'm going to fill you. And this grain is just the first fruits. There's more to come, isn't there? Naomi replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So Naomi responds with confidence in Boaz that he's a man of his word. He's a man of integrity. This man is godly. He's generous. Just rest. Just rest, Ruth. And next week in chapter 4, we're going to hear how the story turns out. Don't you love books that end that way? (laughs) Leave you hanging, waiting for the sequel. (laughs) Well, we're going to find out in chapter 4 how this story turns out. But let's just pause and look back on chapter 3, this part of the story. What do we learn about God in this part of the book of Ruth? Well, one thing we learn is that he's the sovereign king. God has full ability and full authority to direct the affairs of his people. Sometimes we forget that, that God isn't some sort, sort of God who's just powerless. God has both the power and the authority. He has the ability and the authority to direct the affairs of his people. And while Naomi might have been forgetting this and thinking, you know, God doesn't care about me, here's the sovereign king of the universe who is also, the second thing we see here is that he's the heavenly father. And when I am discouraged myself and need to preach to myself and when I, as a pastor, seek to counsel discouraged people, one of the things I've been doing more in my older years is to keep it simple. And I think of these four words from the lips of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, I think it's verse 32, where in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, your heavenly Father cares. Four words. Your heavenly Father cares. And I think if we could just hang on those four words, how different our perspective would be when we're going through difficult times. He's heavenly. In other words, he's our father in heaven. He's heavenly. He's the king. And as the king, he is sovereign over our lives. He has the ability. He can deal with the affairs of our life. He's our heavenly father. He's our heavenly father. He cares. He loves us. And Jesus says, your heavenly father is personal. He's mine. He's my personal heavenly father. Jesus says, your heavenly father knows. We never need to think that God has somehow turned his face away and doesn't see what's going on. Maybe he's on vacation, taking a nap. No, he is always aware of our needs. Your heavenly father knows. Naomi in particular needed to hear that, didn't she? This woman who was bitter, depressed, hopeless, Needed to hear those words, your heavenly Father knows. And in this chapter of the book of Ruth, we begin to see those truths getting a grip on this bitter woman's soul. And we begin to see hope stirring again. That maybe God will pour out his blessings. Maybe God will fill our emptiness. 
We see that about God. What do we see about ourselves as God's people in this story? Behind this whole story of Ruth is a picture of God's plan of redemption. I think it's easy to get caught up in the love story and say that is a really cool love story, and it is. And God put it in his book. But to read this story and look over, as it were, over the shoulder of Boaz. And as we look over the shoulder of Boaz, who do we see standing there? We see Jesus Christ. They're like Ruth. We're outsiders. We're outsiders. We, we have no claim. We have no claim on God. We have nothing to offer him. We weren't born with citizenship in his kingdom. We're foreigners, exiles. And yet, what has he done for us? He gave us a kinsman redeemer. He gave us the God-man, Jesus Christ, our kin. He gave us our kinsman redeemer to come and to, to rescue us, to redeem us. And as I read Ruth 3, my mind keeps going to Ephesians 2. Let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul writes in that letter, he says, Remember that you were at times separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise. Listen, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. So then, you, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household, members of the family of God. And if you're here today as a believer, you read Ruth 3 and you say, Oh, that's me. I'm Ruth. I had no claim. A foreigner to, to God, a foreigner to his kingdom, a foreigner to his family, an outsider, without rights. Nothing I could say or do would convince God that he owes me anything. But he has spread over me the, the wings of his grace. He has given me his, his kinsman, redeemer, his son, my Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ has come and he's redeemed his bride, the church. He's spread his wings over us and he's taken us as his bride. So that we read the story and we say, that's me, that's us. That our kinsman redeemer has rescued us. And if you're here today, some of you are here today and you say, I, I, don't, I don't see that in my life. I don't, I don't think I'm part of this family. I encourage you with something. So often when we think about our own situation in our most honest moments, we say, I, I don't deserve God's grace. Oh, that's so true, my friend. You don't, you don't deserve God's grace. It's probably worse than you realize. And I'm not saying today, try to come up with some, something to convince God to show you favor with. 
Try to convince them that you're sincere. Remind them of all the good things you've done. God's not impressed with that. But what if you confess your unworthiness? What if you come to him and say, I'm an outsider. I'm a foreigner to your promises. I, I, have, I have no claims. I have, I have no claims on your grace. But here's, here's a kinsman redeemer. Here's, here's Jesus Christ. I, I want him to cover me. I want him to cover me with his, his wings of grace. I want to seek protection under Jesus Christ. If you come to him, he'll do that for you. If you come, not trying to impress him, but confessing your unworthiness, and say, would you spread your wings of grace over me? Would you show me your covenant blood? He'll do it. He'll do it. And the next thing you know, you're in the family. You realize he's brought me into his family and that we enjoy Jesus Christ as our Redeemer and God as our Father. Would you do that today? I want to pray for us and ask the worship team to come and then I'll be back to give a word of benediction.